Well, some of you may be like me, and you like a good action-adventure movie, right? I particularly like a good spy movie. I don't know, anybody like spy movies, right? That's reality. Part of that is because the structure of the movie is the people who are supposed to be good at the beginning don't necessarily always turn out to be the good guys. And the bad guys don't always turn out to be the bad guys. Some of them change and turn and shift a little bit. And a good spy plot means that everything kind of gets dumped on its head and the structure of what you think from the beginning changes by the end. And this morning, the passage we're going to look at, Jesus does something very similar to the structure of the day. And he's going to flip it upside down and then put a structure back together that makes a whole lot more sense. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 is where we're headed. And we're going to begin in verse 28. So while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background on what's going on. Matthew 21 begins with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. People are celebrating him. They're putting their coats down, tree branches down. He's entering into the city as a hero. And they're calling him the son of David and saying, Hosanna. They're marking him as a special prophet. And so he comes into this huge welcome. And then he goes to the temple and he begins to clean it out. And not with a broom or a mop, but with the reality of taking the tables and turning over the tables of the money changers. These were people who were misusing God's house. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, you are misusing my father's house. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. And he cleans it out, drives them out. And immediately after that, he begins to heal people, the lame, the blind. He's doing miracles in front of all the people. And kids begin to celebrate him and say, Hosanna to the son of David, which would be a marking that he's the Savior. He's the Messiah that's to come, which would be blasphemy if it wasn't true. The religious leaders of the day hear this, and they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, do you hear what these kids are saying? Basically challenging him to shut them down. And what his response is, hey, have you not read in the scriptures? Which anytime Jesus says that to the religious elite, he's kind of mocking them a little bit. Because they grew up knowing the scriptures. Of course they knew the scriptures. They were trained in it. But he's letting them know, you may have read it and you may know it. That doesn't mean you understand it or apply it. He said, out of the mouth of babes did I not orchestrate praise for myself. So he basically just answered their question. They said, hey, do you know what they're saying? And he says, yes, I know what they're saying. They're saying I am who I am. I'm the Messiah. That probably went over real well for them. Then he immediately leaves and he goes to Bethany just outside Jerusalem, spends the night, then comes back in the morning, goes back to the temple, begins to teach the people again. And while he's teaching them, these religious leaders come back to him. You can only imagine how long they've spent the night before going, how are we going to get him? What are we going to say? What are we going to ask him? If he comes back, what are we going to do? Now's their chance. He's teaching a whole group of people and they're going to get to call him out in front of everybody. And they ask him this question, by what authority do you do these things? Who's a, who has given you authority? And in great Jesus fashion, what he does when he is challenged with a question that's seeking to catch him, he asks a question back. Try it sometime. It's really fun. Ask a question back to someone who asks you a question aggressively. What Jesus did was he said, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. The baptism of John, what was its source, heaven or men? And see, the reality of that was he knew they did not like John. John the Baptist was one that was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. 
He, he was baptizing people, saying, there's one that's coming after me. There's one that I'm going to point to. And when he saw Jesus, he told everybody, hey, this is the one I was talking about. So the religious leaders didn't like John the Baptist. And so in that moment, when he asked them that question, they're stumped. They gather together in their little huddle, and they, they say, well, if we say his baptism's from heaven, then Jesus will respond, why didn't you receive his message? His message, what was his message? His message was Jesus. Well, they couldn't answer that way. And they said, well, if we say his baptism's from men, all the people here, like John the Baptist, consider him a prophet, our polling numbers are going to drop. We need those poll numbers to stay up, so we can't say his baptism was from men. So our official answer, final answer, is we don't know. And they leave it at that, and Jesus responds to them, then neither will I answer your question for me and tell you by what authority I do these things. And immediately we pick up in verse 28. It's the continuation of the story. But what do you think? This is Jesus speaking. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And then he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? You catch that? If, you, if you're a parent or you've ever been a child, which should include everybody here, you know these two answers and responses. We have three little ones running around our house. I know these responses well. Right? I ask our kids, hey, can you take out the trash? The first response would have been no. Which, again, if you've ever been a kid or been a parent, that response doesn't go over very well. Right? It didn't go over well for me as a kid either. But they said no. But the reality was, in this case, the son went away and regretted it. See, as our kids get older, every once in a while, they don't give me no responses very often. But when they're in one of those moods and they give me a no, every once in a while, I'll just step back for a little bit and see what happens. Not always, but every once in a while. And see if conviction begins to set in and they begin to respond. See, in this case, they regretted. The son regretted his decision and he obeyed the father. Now, the second response is one I get much more often. Hey, can you take out the trash? Yes, sir. I go away, 30 minutes later, come back, and the trash is in the same spot. And they're running off over here somewhere. Hey, uh, trash, right? You were going to take it out? Yes, sir. If you don't stand right there, you go away. What happens? That trash is still there 30 minutes later, right? So what Jesus is telling them right here, hey, the first son said no, but then he responded. The second son said yes, and then didn't respond. Which one did the will of his father? This is a cupcake question. Everybody knows the answer. These religious elites know the answer. They said the first. This is where Jesus is going to bring it down on them a little bit. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe in him to believe him. Did you catch that, what he just did? They must have been a little excited. We got the answer right. And then Jesus said, hey, you're like the son who said yes and then didn't respond. The tax collectors, prostitutes, the ones that are supposed to be the outcasts of society that aren't supposed to have any hope of knowing me, they're the ones that are going to get into the kingdom before you do. You know what Jesus just did? The place where they were supposed to be the greatest opportunity for belief 
He just exposed unbelief. And he opened the door to belief where there was supposed to be no hope of belief. Right? The, the best, the ones that were supposed to be most accepted by the Lord were actually the rejected. And the ones who were supposed to be rejected had become the accepted. Their system just got flipped on its head. These were the good guys. These were the bad guys. Jesus said, let me take it and turn it upside down. You ever put a, a, a big puzzle together, right? You ever try to put a thousand piece puzzle together and you put it together on a mat and it's all finished? You work really hard on that. You ever had anybody come and just dump it over? Shake it out? That's what Jesus just did to their religious structure. He just said, you have built up a religious structure to try to earn the favor of God. You've taken good things, the knowing scripture, praying, seeking the Lord, giving, all those kinds of things, and you've built a structure of trying to earn the favor of God and put this puzzle together that took generations to build off of good pieces that you have misused, and you've now missed the mark completely. Let me take it and dump it out. And even when he answered the question he asked them, did you catch that? He answered the question about who John is and was. John came in righteousness. His message came in righteousness. He answered the question he asked them so that they would understand something. One of the things Jesus is always doing in his parables, most of the time, he is exposing unbelief. Why does he expose unbelief? Is it to be mean? No. He's exposing unbelief so that those who are walking in unbelief would have an opportunity to respond in clear and right belief. And he's making the way so that others would not follow in the same path of unbelief. See, these religious leaders believed they were living rightly before God and he needed to turn that upside down so they understood right where they were that they had built a religious structure that did not lead them to the Lord. It actually prevented them from seeing the Lord. And there are those of us in this room this morning that if we are not very careful, if we look at our lives, we might see a reality that we have built a religious structure and generations of sitting in church and doing right things and leading great ministries only to realize we are pursuing ourselves and have put a puzzle of religious activity together. And the Lord says, right where you are supposed to have belief because I've given you great opportunity is nothing but unbelief. Jesus threw them in chaos. Their system in the chaos. But he's not going to leave it there. He's going to continue to pursue, show where unbelief exists, and then begin to put the structure back together. Look at what he says, verse 33. He's not done with the stories. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Here's a picture. Right? It, this is like a, a restaurant owner, someone who builds a restaurant, they buy everything that's needed, they put everything in there that's needed, they go and hire a general manager, say, you run the restaurant for me, I'm going on a vacation, I'll get my money when I get back. Right? Now, if you've ever owned a restaurant, you know it's not quite as clear and clean as that. But that's the goal. Here's what he's done. He's, he, the owner's got them to work the land for him. Now the difference is in this day, culture was so structured that you had your class, you had your place. These vine growers were less valued than this owner would have been. And you don't try to break through your class up to the next class because if you do, that gets slapped down real quick. You know your place and there's value based on your position in society. This owner would have been a higher value than these vine growers would have been. It's different than the way we try 
to structure the value of people today that we're equal. They would not have been equal. It would have been different. So verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. See, culturally in this time, the son is the heir of everything from the father. That firstborn son gets it all. All right, being the firstborn son, I kind of like that structure. That would work well for me, not so much for my sisters, right? No, this is the structure of the day. The firstborn son got everything. And, and he was as close as you could get to being the owner, was this son. He was the most valued. So if he shows up at the vineyard, basically the same as the owner showing up look how they treat him verse 38 but when the vine growers saw the son they said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and seize his inheritance they took him threw him out of the vineyard and killed him therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those vine growers this was another cupcake question everybody knew there is no way they would allow this to happen not a chance What's the response of the religious leaders? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. They get the answer right. They know, okay, he's going he's to bring them to a destructive end and then he's going to rent it out to someone else. And then this is where Jesus jumps in, brings everything home and begins to show them exactly what he's doing. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? Again, jabbing at him a little bit. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You know what Jesus just told him? He made it very, very clear. So the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. You know what a cornerstone was in that, in that time, in that period? What it was, the cornerstone was the most important stone. Everything else depended on this stone in a structure. This had to be one of the best stones. It had to be the most level. Everything had to be exactly right because if it was off, the rest of the structure was going to be off. It was the most important. And they'd build off that cornerstone. And then there'd be other stones that were put into the structure that were important. They weren't quite as important as a cornerstone, but they still needed to be good stones. And there were other stones that didn't have to be great, but they needed to be okay. And then there were eventually were stones that just got completely tossed out because they didn't fit anywhere in the structure. What Jesus just told them was, hey, your structure, what you've built, your thousand-piece puzzle that, you, that I just tumped over, it's not dependent on what you do and you putting a thousand piece puzzle together. It's dependent on one piece and one piece alone. And that's the cornerstone. You know who the cornerstone is? Jesus tells them, I am the cornerstone. Everything is built around me. You don't have to be the best of the best because you can be the very best and still miss me. If you're the worst of the worst, my grace extends to you and you can know me. It is what you do with me as the cornerstone. That is what matters. Throw your thousand piece puzzle out and take the one piece that matters then the God of all creation can build his trillion-piece puzzle that makes much more sense. We are dependent 
upon Christ as the cornerstone. He gave them one question. What are you going to do with me? Not how good were you, not how much do you know scripture, not how much do you do this or do that, or not how terrible are you, but what are you going to do with me? And that decision marks everything else. He said, I can turn this structure over that you're used to because it's way off. And I can give you a much simpler structure that you can understand. It's me. And what are you going to do with me? And here's the reality that they knew clearly he was speaking to them. Sometimes in these parables, we wonder, and it's made clear, hey, who's, who's, do they understand what he's saying? Because sometimes it's clear that they don't understand. Matthew wants us to know they understood Jesus was marking them in this moment, and they understood clearly he was talking to them. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people. So here's the deal. They knew he was talking to them, right? They knew. Let's be very clear. There are some of us here this morning. The Lord is beginning to work in our life. And we have a choice. What are we going to do with the cornerstone? Is Jesus the cornerstone or rejected stone? What are you going to do with him? Doesn't matter if you've been in the pew for 50 years or five minutes. We have a choice to make of what we do with Christ. These leaders in this moment had a decision to make. And their decision was clear. That verse 46, whether they were going to trust Christ or not, 46 tells us, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Right? They sought to seize him. Their immediate response was, I want not, I wonder if this is right. I wonder if Jesus is who he says he is. Their immediate response is, we got to get rid of this guy. He's trouble. Because he is throwing a wrench in our system. Did you catch the warning signs for all of us? Are we trusting Christ or building a system to try to earn the favor of God? And making it look really pretty and trying to mimic truth? Or have we made Christ the cornerstone of our lives? See, these religious leaders chose to reject Christ. But the beauty of the gospel said that there are other religious leaders that chose to set down what was holding them back from trusting the Lord, and they had opportunities to know him. You can turn there later to Acts chapter 9. There was a man named Saul. He was a religious elite, a religious up-and-comer. He had the right family. He had the right pedigree. He had the right teachers. He was supposed to be the future of the religious leaders. In fact, he was persecuting people who followed Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 9 talks about him breathing murder and threats to the disciples of the Lord. That's an aggressive terminology. So he was supposed to go to Damascus. He's supposed to go to this place and arrest Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem so they could be punished for following Jesus. What's he do? He's on his way to Damascus. A bright light flashes. The Lord speaks to him, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His response, who are you, Lord? And then the response back to him, I am Jesus, I'm the one you're persecuting. See, Saul, in that moment, was confronted with the same question. What am I going to do with Jesus? Am I going to receive him or reject him? 
And you say, well, yeah, come on, right? Like this guy had heaven open up, bright lights. If, if that happened this morning, I think we would all trust him, right? Remember this, those religious leaders lived out in front of Jesus and had Jesus lived out in front of them. They saw him day in and day out, saw him face to face, saw his miracles, heard his voice, and they still rejected him. They saw him more and had greater opportunity than Saul did. And yet Saul was going to respond to Christ. What did Saul do? He spent three days not eating, not drinking, but praying, seeking the Lord The passage goes on to make it clear that he trusted Christ and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was baptized and that he began to use the very scriptures that he had originally used to persecute Christians. He used those scriptures to point out that Jesus is the Christ. What was the difference between Saul and those religious leaders? The religious leaders couldn't put down their idols and Saul couldn't put down the truth. When confronted with the truth, he had a choice to make. If it's true, then I want to follow it. They were so, the religious leaders were so caught in their structure that they couldn't put down their idol of comfort long enough to see truth. They didn't care what truth was anymore. They cared about their comfort. You see, we all face these idols. And that idol of comfort in that moment outweighed seeking of truth. Because what they missed, temporary comfort, was more important than eternal comfort. But the inverse of that was true. In the moment that they sought their temporary comfort and rejected Christ, they created for themselves an eternal discomfort. Because there would be a separation for all of eternity from the Lord when they chose to reject Christ. It's a heavy weight. But see, what they, what they did was they thought, you know what, our value is built on this structure, right? People come up to us and say, oh, if my son was half the man you are, it will be wonderful. Oh, would you give us some wisdom? You're the wise one. Come tell us what to do. Oh, man, you guys are just wonderful. Look at how much, well they pray. Look at how much they do this. Their families had raised them in this structure, so they would be turning away from what their family had believed. All those things had led to the place of following comfort. And that comfort would prevent them from knowing Jesus Christ and from walking in truth. There are likely some here today that you are faced with the exact same question. As Jesus sat before those religious leaders and gave them a choice of what they were going to do with him, you have a choice today of what you're going to do with Christ and are there idols that are going to prevent you from trusting him? It's embarrassing. I've been a deacon in this church. I can't possibly say I didn't know Christ. I can tell you this. Say, I wonder what people are going to think. I can tell you what they're going to think. They're going to think they're so glad that the grace of God extended to you that you heard and received the truth of Christ way more than your temporary comfort of not being embarrassed. But this goes... This passage is about exposing unbelief and allowing direction to see where belief really lies. There's truth here for those of us who've made Christ our cornerstone. There's great truth here for us to see and to understand. Because the reality is all of us have our idols of comfort, control, success, praise that sneak into our life. That prevent us from walking clearly. I had one of those moments about three months ago where the Lord made it very clear to me 
were having about a two-week period that was just rough. You, you had those periods. It's nothing so major over the top. Everybody's health is fine, but just one thing after another is going wrong. So we had one of those days where uh, we came home, the dog's arm was slashed open, and so I had to take her to the vet. On my way to the vet, the car breaks down. I call Michelle, say, hey, Michelle, the car broke down. She says, guess what? There's water on the bathroom floor, and I don't know where it's coming from. I mean, you know, it's just one of those moments. We have those. And we had about a two-week period where that was the case, where that can, things like that just continued to happen. And with the dog, we taken her, we're supposed to take her back, get something taken out, um, and, and at a certain time. And so that day came that I was supposed to take her back, and that day went. Um, and it was about three or four days later, and I knew, okay, all these other things are going on, but I got to take the dog. And I knew my own idol of comfort in that moment was I didn't want to hear a vet get on to me for not bringing her in time, right? I just didn't want to hear it. So I call him and tell him I'm going to bring the dog in, see if it's okay to bring her in. And I do the thing that gives me the most comfort in that moment, which definitely not proud of. Michelle's in the room, she's doing something else, and I'm on the phone, and I say, hey, my wife thought I brought the dog in, and I thought she brought the dog in, and so can I just bring her in? They said, sure, and in that moment, there was that, that piece of, oh, come on, you didn't tell the truth. On the other side, there's the, hey, that was nicer. <laughs> Later that night, kids are in bed, Michelle's reading a book. And only the way a wife can do it, so lovingly and gently. And the Lord uses her so often in my life with great compassion. She puts her book down and says, I don't know that I've ever heard you lie like that before. Whew. Right to my heart. Because in that moment, what I realized, my idol of comfort over something so ridiculous put at risk my representation of the gospel to my wife. I chose something so menial over something so wonderful and big. And I thought, if I will lie about that, what else am I willing to lie about? And that idol of comfort, the Lord began to root out, say, I need you to show me, Lord, how to get this out. Because if I will lie over this, who's to say I won't lie over this or this or this? Just to be comfortable. Thankfully, the Lord's grace covers all of those moments. And yet that reality that, um, no, and I don't want to be back in that place. I don't want my idol of comfort to come screaming back into my life and to take control. I don't want my idols of control to, take, to lead me to where I don't want to be. See, we as believers in Christ have the same question. We believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, but as the cornerstone, are we truly trusting him as the cornerstone? Or have we said, hey, you can be the cornerstone, but you just kind of stay over here in your little segment, hold everything together and let me build everything else. You make sure the foundation doesn't fall and I'll do just fine on all the rest of it. And as believers, the Lord is clear. He is giving us opportunities to allow those idols to be removed so that we can become the people he's created us to be, carry the gospel the way he's created us to be, find the fulfillment and joy that he's created for us to have. See, in this moment, he, the Lord chased these religious leaders. This was not the only time they had to respond. The Lord pursued them, gave them opportunities to respond. 
over and over again. And as believers, doesn't the Lord pursue us? And we may not have the decision of what do I do right now with Christ as a cornerstone because I made him the cornerstone of my life. But we do have the decisions that when the Lord is asking you to do something and leading you to something, are we going to obey or not? Some of us are being asked to go knock on our neighbor's door. And the Lord is leading you over and over again. Go knock on their door. Go meet them. I want you to be the one to share the gospel with them. Oh, Lord, I can't do that. That's uncomfortable. For some people, the Lord's leading you right now. You need to go to the person in the office next to you and just begin to share Christ with them. Well, that's uncomfortable. What if I lose my job? Or for some of us, it's how do I get outside my comfort zone? I'm comfortable in my community and I don't want any of that to change. I want Georgetown to stop growing because it's uncomfortable. It's getting bigger, right? Or we get uncomfortable in other ways with our family. Everything's good. I don't want to rock the boat. We get uncomfortable with our job or we get comfortable with our job or we get comfortable with our society or any number of things. And the Lord begins to say, I want you to trust me. Because the reality is there are people here that are wrestling in this moment with what God's called you to do and you've said no. One of those moments in my life was as a freshman. After my freshman year in high school, we went to summer camp. The students that will be in most of them in the next hour, they just got back from camp this week. There will be about 400 um, young kids that will be in here for wind shape this week. And that reality was, I felt the Lord was beginning to lead me toward pastoral ministry at that summer camp. And I began to write it off and say, you know what? It's just my emotional high that I'm experiencing. It's great messages from someone who can preach to students. It's good music. It's um, spending time with other friends of mine talking about great things. It's being encouraged over and over again in a lot of different ways. So it's just emotional high. So when I came home, I felt the same way. I said, no, that was just, that wasn't the Lord. In reality, what it was, was I had my plan in place and I knew what my, his, my future was going to hold. I knew where I was going to go to school. I knew what my job was going to be. I didn't want God to rock my comfort boat. For the next six months, I began to run from what the Lord was leading me to. And it, I don't know if this happened every time. It felt like it happened every time someone preached or was teaching. It felt like they were saying, someone here is not listening to what God is calling you to do, and it's time for you to stop running and start listening. For six months, I felt like they were preaching that same message. I thought, can't somebody get a different message? And that reality of after the Lord wrestled with me in my comfort and allowed me to be able to move to a place of saying, Lord, I need to stop trying to put all the pieces together. I need to stop trying to, to fit a puzzle that doesn't work. I need to worry about one piece, and that's you as the cornerstone. And that means my tomorrow is yours. That means my today is yours. That means my job is yours. That means my family is yours. And whatever the Lord is leading you to today, you have an opportunity to say yes or to say no. There may be some in here that the Lord's been leading you into some type of pastoral ministry and you've just chosen to say no. There may be some where the Lord's called you to go to the other side of the world and you've said no. You may have even had a few words before the no in that one. But the reality is the Lord is calling each one of us to something. And are we going to be faithful and available and trusting that if he is the cornerstone and I'm relying on him, the cornerstone, building on him and allowing him to build is the only way that makes sense and it's the only thing that's going to last. So what are you going to do with the cornerstone? Is Christ the cornerstone or is he the rejected stone?